light, ever expanding and illuminating truth, which is always revealed with wisdom, a spiritual nutrient necessary for vitality that is maintained through selflessness, a filter of ether that aids purity, which is love, love, a limitless paper lantern floating into infinity on the intentions and actions of initiates of the mysteries. Welcome fellow phoenixes to the Spiritual Phoenix Podcast, where we make a daily offering to the divine by putting our past on the pyre, searching the smoke for spirituality, turning the ashes into art, adapting isolation into connection, and manifesting mental wellness. I'm your host, Ross Cessna, and together we are the Spiritual Phoenix. The intent of this show isn't to tell you what to think, but to get you to think and originally articulate yourself in a way that is uplifting. We are the artists of our lives, and today is a blank canvas. Let's collectively create a better tomorrow. Now, before I play this interview that I recorded yesterday with Jerry Brown, I wanted to take some uh, time out and just throw a disclaimer out there. I'm not advocating the use of psychedelics. Um, they have helped me in my personal life, and they've also been extremely detrimental in my personal life. I don't think that Jerry himself is necessarily advocating the reckless use of, of psychedelics. This is an individual thing, and I can never specifically state that they are for everybody or they aren't. For me, any kind of tool or resource that you can use can be used for positive things as well as negative things in some capacity, or I should say most, always is a pretty strong word. Um, but most things can be used for the good or the bad. Now, you might be able to access certain things through psychedelics, but you can access them without psychedelics and also there's a lot of inherent traps in using substances to achieve these states. Um, near the end of the interview, Jerry states that he no longer takes them and that some people continually take them, um, even though they learn the lesson or maybe they're slow learners or something. And I don't think he means that in a negative way. I think what he's trying to articulate is you can have these experiences, gain the insight, and then no longer need them to reach those states. I had been planning on doing an episode about that kind of similar topic. Um, and I, I think I still will at some point. Um, with that being said, oh, one, one other caveat would be, if you are um, Christian, Jerry isn't trying to attack your beliefs or your religion or anything like that. He's just showing evidence that supports his research, basically. Um, and with that, I'll give you the interview with Jerry Brown. All right. Welcome everybody. We have, uh, Jerry Brown with us today. Jerry, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you. That's, that's awesome, man. Um, I normally like to start the show off by asking the guests what they're grateful for. What are you grateful today for today, Jerry? Well, uh, at my age, I'm grateful to wake up and be alive. I'm grateful for my beloved wife, who's been a friend and companion and mother of my children, and to my surprise, incredible photographer and editor uh, as a co-author of the book. Uh, so I'm grateful uh, for that. And I'm grateful for um, what's, what's happening in the near future. I'm leaving, uh, Julie and I are leaving next week to attend Exploring Psychedelics Conference on May 25th and 26th in Ashland, Oregon where I'll be presenting 
on uh, May 25th, Thursday. So I'm grateful about that as well. Uh, that's, that's awesome. You have a lot of things to be grateful for. That sounds like it's going to be a really cool experience. Uh, I'm intrigued to see, are you going to have any videos of that coming out? Um, yes. If anyone who goes to Exploring Psychedelics website, uh, Martin Ball, the coordinator of this conference and an author on psychedelics uh, in his own right, posts all of the presentations on the website after the conference. So you can find the 2016 conference presentations there. It's uh, at, I think, the University of Southern Oregon. And there's about three or 400 people. It all takes place in one large room. So uh, yes, there definitely will be video of this particular conference. Uh, as there was video of the incredible MAPS Psychedelic Science 2017 conference, which I have to say flat out is the best conference I've ever been to in my life. And just seeing how far things have gone into the psychedelic renaissance with advances in medical um, treatment with psychedelic, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. And there were 2,800 people from 40 different countries and people who all were informed, many experienced about psychedelics, many of the phenomenal researchers that we read about online. And you can see the video to that if you uh, Google uh, MAP Psychedelic Science. So that's grateful awesome. about all, everything that's, that's happening. And, and also realizing, you know, having uh, first put my toe in the water of psychedelics back in the uh, early 70s, so grateful to see this resurgence that's coming about at this time. And uh, realizing that you, you very often don't get a second chance in American life. And psychedelics are certainly getting a second hearing by the public, the media, and I think wise uh, policymakers, and certainly from the FDA and the Department of Defense that is approving uh, research on these uh, because they're, they're showing that the clinical trials are so effective to help vets and other first responders overcome post-traumatic stress disorder that couldn't be treated with other therapies and also uh, recent research showing how psychedelics in one or two sessions have alleviated anxiety and depression in terminal cancer patients. And these are, these are very impressive results, as are the initial findings on the effects of microdosing. So I'm very grateful that out of writing this book, I've gotten engaged uh, again more substantially than before with the growing psychedelic community, both of researchers, uh, and, and advocates. So many, many things to be grateful for, many things. That's, that's very beautiful. For me, I found that gratitude is such a, a good gateway to happiness and uh, an enjoyable life overall. The more grateful I am normally, the happier and more meaningful my life is overall. Absolutely. I mean, so many people <clears throat> spend a lot of time thinking about what they don't have instead of appreciating what they do and it's out of that appreciation i think that other good things come absolutely yeah what you focus on grows and what you kind of uh don't pay attention to withers i mean i guess well all the things what? i don't have well said yeah i don't remember i heard that uh, quote from somebody else i don't remember who said it but it's a beautiful quote um and speaking of quotes what two or three quotes resonate with you the most and what do they mean to you well i would say uh one of my favorite quotes 
is from Horace Mann, the founder of free public education uh, in the United States. And he said, be ashamed to die until you've won some victory for humanity. Uh, I think it's a, for, for people who, who resonate with that, it's a great quote to think about. Um, another quote is uh, from our book, from the beginning of part two of the book. And here is where we plunge in to visiting the churches and cathedrals and describing the psychedelic art that we find. And we wondered, you know, why has this been here, hidden in plain sight for centuries, uh, sometimes for over a thousand years? And the quote is, the eyes can only see what the mind is prepared to comprehend. And what we found here was that the art historians, the tour guides, the theologians, uh, the church historians who visited and in some cases analyzed these churches, they had no background in ethnobotany or in ethnomycology, the study in which different cultures relate to um, the fungal world. Um, so they couldn't see it, even if it was right in front of their eyes, the mushroom images that we found in stained glass windows and in frescoes in churches and cathedrals. The third quote is actually a quote that I came up with, uh, or at least my wife thinks I'm, it is original, and it is, the myth is strong because the need is strong. The myth is strong because the need is strong. And I find that the personal myths we may develop to delude ourselves and the myths that cultures weave are because there's a very deep human need uh, for understanding or comprehension driving those uh, particular myths and holding them in place. So those are, those are three of my favorite quotes. There are many throughout our book, The Psychedelic Gospels, but those are certainly among my favorites. Those are, those are definitely some powerful quotes. I, I really vibe with all of those. Um, and that you've mentioned the psychedelic gospels, um, and that's the, the book that uh, I want to ask you a lot of questions about. Who are you outside of that, and who are you? What role do you play in the psychedelic gospels? Well, um, outside of that, I'm an anthropologist by training. For 42 years, as founding professor of anthropology at Florida International University, uh, I served there as a founding professor, and after my first LSD trip in 1973, I designed and taught a course on hallucinogens and culture, which I taught for every year just about until my retirement. And the research for this book grew out of that course. I'm an, I'm an activist. I've been involved uh, way back in the day uh, with Cesar Chavez and the farm workers movement. I helped coordinate the first great boycotts to win union contracts for grape workers. I was involved way back in college in the anti-war movement. Uh, I've been very involved for 30 years with um, uh, anti-nuclear power efforts and in trying to bring about renewable energy. And just like psychedelics, uh, well, much more strongly, uh, renewable energy is going deep into the mainstream of not only US, but China and Germany. Uh, in fact, uh, California, uh, now has a goal of 33% renewable energy. They've set another one at 50%, and there's legislation uh, in before the California Senate, SB 100, to bring California to 100% renewable energy by 2045. 
So what used to be considered impossible is now seen as the inevitable. And in Germany, there are no, more people employed in renewable energy than in any other industry except automobiles, automobile manufacturing. And that says a lot. So that's my other uh, work. Uh, I'm a devoted husband. I have two wonderful uh, kids. Kids, they're grown men. Uh, one's 43 and one's 33. Uh, one's teaching English in China and the other is um, a business consultant. So uh, th that's uh, a little bit about my background and my, my life. That's awesome. It seems like you've always kind of been in, involved in things that you really support. And I think that that's a very beautiful thing. And more people should uh, step into that, I think, because it probably gives you such a quality of life some people never even really dream of. Well, I think that if that's your passion, I, I very much believe that. I mean, I've had some friends over the years who've been, you know, um, committed hedonists. And this is, this is their life. And I feel um, there are many pathways through the world. Uh, who's to judge the pathways that other people, you know, take if they if they work for them? But for people who resonate with uh, trying to make the world a little better, a little better place than they found it, uh, working in these uh, for the greater good, at least what I perceive to be the greater good in in terms of anti-war, in terms of civil rights, in terms of justice for farm workers, in terms of renewable energy to get us off of these fossil fuels, uh, which are so polluting and which are melting, you know, Antarctica, which could lead in time to 140 foot sea level rise, if you can, any of us can comprehend what that would mean. Um, you know, these are important things to work on. They're important things to pass on to future generations. And I'll tell you, you meet really wonderful people when you work in these movements. Yeah, I can only imagine. I think that that's great. Um, you followed your passions. And just from hearing, reading a little bit about where those passions have taken you, it sounds like it's been a long, strange trip in lots of ways. <laughs> yeah, it has been a long, strange trip. And I couldn't in my wildest dreams imagine that out of the turmoil that came from my first LSD trip, which was kind of a Carlos Castaneda-like experience, that I would one day be sitting here, you know, speaking to you and to your listeners who are interested in what's happening now with psychedelics as they're having a resurgence. So it has been a, a long trip and it's very gratifying uh, to see what's happening now in that particular area. And look, I'm not alone uh, when, I, when I spoke to the MAPS conference, a MAP, multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies, maps.org. Uh, I wouldn't ask people, as I do at the beginning of most of my talks, how many of you have had psychedelic experience? Because that's pretty much a given at a MAPS conference. <laughs> but I did ask people, hey, how many of you have had a difficult or a challenging first or early experience? And a lot of people raised their hands. And you're not alone because this is exactly what happened to Albert Hoffman, uh, the famous uh, pharmacologist and chemist who synthesized LSD in his laboratory, Sandoz Laboratories in Switzerland, back in 1938, and actually didn't experience an LSD trip until 1943, five years later. And he had a frightful experience. He thought he was uh, losing his mind. He thought he was dying. 
Uh, he, he was transported to other worlds, to other times. And so it is not uncommon, and that is why it is so important uh, for people to you know, be in the right set and setting when they explore these things and, and certainly to have a safe place to, um, to explore these. In fact, there's a wonderful book by Jim Fadiman, who I consider, along with Stanislav Grof, to be one of the, the, among the two greatest researchers living today in psychedelics who've been at it for four decades. And Fadiman created uh, this book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. And I strongly recommend it to anyone who's explored psychedelics or is thinking about exploring them. It has uh, a lot of wisdom uh, <clears throat> in that particular book. <clears throat> so out of the challenge of this first experience, I wanted to know more, much more about psychedelics and being a professor, I decided to design it and, and teach a course called Hallucinogens and Culture, uh, which I've taught for many years, which looks at uh, entheogens, plants and chemical substances that generate the divine within, in the archeological record, in indigenous tribes and peoples, in classical uh, cultures like ancient Greece, uh, in the Eleusinian mysteries and in India, in the Soma of the Hindu Rigveda, and into uh, contemporary times. And as you know, our particular research and contribution to the field is the discovery and analysis of, of psychedelic images uh, in, Christ, in early and medieval Christian art. Mm -hmm. And I think that you really make a compelling case. And like I was telling you before we started uh, recording, I, I found the way that you presented all the information and your research and everything to be very entertaining and informative, which I think is crucial. Um, and it really is an enjoyable book. And I think that you make a, a very strong case for, um, for everything that you put forward. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, look, we got to a certain point after we made this discovery at Roslyn Chapel. So here is the image. And this over here is the uh, a, a green man head there's over a hundred of these in roslyn chapel and this one is suspended from the ceiling and roslyn is a which is located south of edinburgh in scotland is a fusion of pagan and christian symbolism and this green man head comes down from the ceiling and i bought a plaster replica of it and a few weeks later i was uh, ha put it out on a table and turned it around and saw what I recognized as a psychedelic Amanita muscaria mushroom sculpted upside down in the forehead of Rosalind's most prominent green man. And this really set Julie and me, uh, you know, spinning out. I was saying, well, what's going on here? Are there psychedelics in other, what is, what is Sir William Sinclair, the person who founded and created Rosalind uh, in the 1400s? What is he trying to tell us about psychedelics and Christianity? I mean, this is a Christian church. Are there other churches and cathedrals that would have psychedelics? And then we started speculating pretty wildly, almost going into a rambunctious overthrow of reason. But what about in the life of Jesus and the disciples? And then we had a pause. We had to kind of call time out and said, look, uh, the words of Carl Sagan, the famous astrophysicist, came to mind. And he said, Extraordinary claims require 
extraordinary evidence. And we knew that if we were gonna be making any assertions about one, the presence of psychedelic images in Christianity, two, what they meant, three, what they implied for the life of Jesus and the disciples, four, what they could possibly mean for current believers and for the future of religion, we better have extraordinary evidence. And, we just, and that would have to be photographic evidence that would be uh, fairly indisputable images of psychedelics, which so so precise that even the variety of the psilocybin mushrooms could be identified, we would have to have that. And that's why we undertook in 2012 this research journey through Europe and the Middle East, uh, visiting churches, cathedrals, abbeys, chapels, small chapels, um, and looking for these images in a variety of Christian art. That means in frescoes, wall paintings, ceiling paintings, sculptures, illuminated manuscripts, Bibles that have drawings and paintings in them, um, in uh, mosaics, and in stained glass windows, such as the main, the uh, magnificent stained glass windows of Chartres Cathedral. Our journey took us uh, to many countries and here on this map, which, which comes from our book, you can see from the dots uh, some of the areas we visited, uh, including over to uh, eventually over into uh, Turkey. So we went to England, we went to France, Germany, Italy, Greece, uh, Turkey. We also visited the Holy Land in the Middle East. And we couldn't get to Egypt because of the uprisings that were taking place at that time through the Irish Spring. But we were able to look at uh, Egyptian archaeology and, and funeral paintings and tomb paintings that were preserved in the great museums of Paris in the Louvre uh, and other smaller museums in Paris and Cambridge, England and, and London, England. So uh, it, was, um, it was quite a journey. And everywhere we went, we found enhanced discoveries. And if, Eventually, Ross, we came uh, to this image here of a giant mushroom drawn on a wall of a tiny chapel of Plain Corral in France, showing the temptation scene in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve standing side by side with a giant Amanita mushroom with the white speckles. So this is the, the red and white mushroom you see in Santa Claus times in Scandinavian fairy tales. Uh, a lot of my students tell me they see this in Super Mario Brothers <laughs> uh, with the snake wound around it. And lo and behold, Adam and Eve are covering themselves, not with um, fig leaves, but actually with mushroom caps. So now we're seeing that, look, uh, in medieval Christian art, there's evidence based on Genesis of psychedelics at the very beginning of the Old Testament. And we find that pretty incredible, and especially Genesis. And for those of you who haven't picked up a Bible for a while, I really recommend you look at Genesis. It is incredible. And God creates Adam and Eve, and he puts them there in the Garden of Eden, and you have everything you need. You have dominion over all, uh, all of the animals, over all of the plants. Look, you never have to work, you never have to pay taxes, you never have to go to school, you're, you're here. 
oh, by the way, there's a tree in the center of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and of everything you can eat. But if you eat that of that tree, in the day that thou eatest thereof, then surely you shall die. Now, here's where the battle of the sexes start, because the guy says, okay, God said it, but Eve is shown by the serpent, and the serpent says, this is good. This will you know, make you awaken you. And she tries it, and she finds it's, it's good. Good, and she says, Adam, you've got to try this. Now, what's really interesting, there's so many interesting things, but God doesn't kill him. You know, why not? And I can, I can certainly speculate on that, and we talk about that in the book. We believe this is an Amanita muscaria, and what we're seeing are several things back in Genesis here. Uh, then a little later on, just two hours away from Plain Corral, where this giant Amanita muscaria mushroom is, which is a psychoactive mushroom that was the psychoactive mushroom identified by Gordon Wasson in his famous book, Soma, Divine Mushroom of Immortality, as the enigmatic Soma plant, which is a god, the juice of the plant, and the plant from the Hindu Rigveda, written in the Sanskrit about 3,500 years ago. Um, and also is a psychoactive plant used from time immemorial and still today among the reindeer herders of Siberia who are considered to be the fathers of shamanism. Uh, we come into this tiny, uh, another a tiny parish church uh, in called St. Martin de Vic in center France. And we walk into the church and the colors and these, the, the murals on the wall are quite spectacular. And as we come into the choir of the church, uh, Julie grabs my arm and she says, uh, do you see what I see? And lo and behold, I say, yes, I do. And here, the joyful youth who are greeting Christ as he rides into Jerusalem on the ass are not holding on to palm leaves, but they're holding on to five tan, smooth, psychedelic mushrooms. And it was here, Ross, that after we saw this and you go down the wall, the room, and there you find on the towers of Jerusalem, on the wall opposite this painting of Jesus's entry, the youth are cutting down large psilocybin mushrooms from the towers of Jerusalem using these long knives again. And if that's not enough, if that's not enough, over that painting of the towers of Jerusalem, is right over another long painting of the Last Supper. And there we find, and these photos are all original photos that Julie took that are in our book. And there, uh, Jesus is sitting with the disciples at the Last Supper. Um, and there are mushroom caps on the table, cut up, same shape, cut up with these long knives, and skillfully drawn in the hems of the disciples are mushroom caps. So the artist is telling us this is important. And it was here, uh, the church bells started ringing to mark the hour. We almost felt like we were transported back in time. And it's almost as if the frescoes came alive and were speaking to us. And it was here, Ross, that we had this aha moment. And we said, this is a psychedelic gospel. This is a different gospel, a different master story of Christianity than the one communicated in the Gospels of the New Testament, the canonic Gospels 
of the New Testament. And this made sense in a way because it was back in the sixth century that Pope Gregory said, let art be the Bible of the illiterate because most of the people, the overwhelming majority of the people were illiterate at that time. So here encoded in this biblical, in these biblical paintings in early and medieval churches was the knowledge that psychedelics were important. And why? Because they're a pathway to the direct experiential knowledge of the divine. And so it makes, it makes sense. At this point, we had to ask ourselves, okay, wait a minute. We've seen this in central France in several instances. Is this a renegade Catholic cult over here, far from the crown and the church? And the, you know, are, are these hippie priests here in the center <laughs> of France in the Middle Ages? So we decided to go to the high holy places of Christianity, to Chartres Cathedral, to Canterbury Cathedral in England, to St. Michael's Church in Hildesheim, Germany, which was made, constructed by Bishop Bernward, a bishop of the Catholic Church, who was the tutor to Otto III, the Holy Roman Emperor, and who was later sainted by the Catholic Church. And there we also found um, unmistakable psychedelic images that I'd be happy to show you in the next part of the conversation. Yeah, I, absolutely. No, I, I find all the images that you present in your book to, to be so compelling. Um, I definitely thought that there would be some, but when you present all these different images and all these different areas and all these different time periods, it becomes more and more difficult to refute any, any of any of that stuff, really. I mean, some people can still refute it, I'm sure, but it goes against the evidence. Um, one of the things that I found interesting is that it is the Amanita muscaria mushroom in a lot of them. Um, and I, obviously, I, I believe that there's validity to it. But I was always under the impression, because from reading Terrence McKenna, that those weren't really psychoactive. But I think he just might have got a bad batch of them and never really experienced it further. Well, it's, it's interesting. Uh, there are both Amanita muscaria mushrooms in some of the paintings. And there are psilocybin mushrooms in others, which I'll show you in a moment. And so we found evidence of both of them quite prominently. In fact, to the point that you could identify what the different varieties of psilocybin were, uh, whether it was a liberty cap or, or, or a different variety. Uh, the thing about Amanita muscaria, and it's been verified, it has two psychoactive agents in it. One is uh, ebotenic acid and the other is muscimol. And they have to be, I mean, they're best taken, uh, you know, either dried or, uh, you know, pounded so that the juice of the Amanita comes out. And this is the way uh, the preparation of them is described in Mandala 10 of the Rig Veda, which is a grand poetic cycle of 10 mandalas, uh, but in the poetic language of the Rig Veda, because the people who compose it are talking to people who obviously knew what mushroom they were talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the unique characteristics of um, the uh, psychoactive agents in Amanita muscaria, and I believe the ebotenic acid converts to muscimol, is that 
unlike all other psychedelics, whether it be mescaline in peyote, or whether it be DMT in uh, ayahuasca, or whether it be psilocybin or psilocin in, um, in psilocybin mushrooms, these psychoactive chemicals don't metabolize very well in the body. So they're passed out into the urine. And this was like a very strange kind of thing because there's passages in the Rig Veda where Indra says, you know, come here, um, you've, Soma, you know, you've assumed your most mighty force, you know, being, you know, pissing it out day by day, like a stag. Well, and then there are passages in Gordon Wasson's book on Soma where people actually describe the shaman and he comes out of his yurt and he urinates and people hold out their cups to catch his urine and drink it. So you're thinking, yuck, mm -hmm. you know, drinking urine, but they are getting a similar experience to the shaman. So this explained one of the most enigmatic passages and related to the whole botany of Soma Amanita muscari in the Rig Veda, which was a strange plant. I mean, it had no bark, it had no branches, it had no leaves, it had no visible seeds. So um, perhaps McKenna, I've personally taken Soma and uh, had a very powerful experience with it. Uh, perhaps Terence McKenna, for whom I have the greatest admiration and respect and for his innovative work, along with his brother, Dennis McKenna, in, in understanding and, and explaining to people how to cultivate, cultivate psilocybin and his many other uh, explorations, although I don't agree with all of them. I admire him as a, as a visionary and psychonaut. Um, I think he might have missed something here mm -hmm. uh, with Dominita muscaria. So if we go over to, um, to Canterbury Cathedral, uh, where the great Canterbury Psalter, which was an illuminated, uh, magnificent, large illuminated manuscript, leather bound and bejeweled, uh, started about 1180 uh, in the very same place where, where Beckett was assassinated. Thomas Beckett was assassinated. We find, and this is the cover image of our book, that the opening of the, the Canterbury Psalter uh, contains uh, several folios that begin with Genesis and work up to the mission of Jesus after he's been baptized. And here in the third image on the opening passages, the illustrations of them from Genesis, we find God creating plants. But if we look at this, we see that God is actually creating psychedelic mushrooms. There's the red and white Amanita mushroom um, to the, uh, to the right of Jesus, and there's a blue psilocybin mushroom. Uh, and psilocybin, uh, when it interacts with oxygen, turns a characteristic blue shade of blue, and that's one of the ways that people can identify, identify it. And there are several other varieties of psilocybin mushrooms, which are almost fractally drawn like little holograms in the caps of those mushrooms. And if that's not enough, in future, just the next couple of illustration, we see that there are green plants drawn between the mushrooms. So the artist is telling us, hey, we know the difference between a mushroom and a plant because some people have argued that, oh, those are really uh, an early characterization of plants. And that's the way 
that they draw them. And the artist is telling us no. I mean, we've seen distinct downward capped umbrella shaped psilocybin mushrooms side by side with upward shaped trees or Italian pines. And the artists, many of them Benedictine monks are saying, yes, this is a tree and this is a, this is a particular mushroom. And part of the problem we have in this field, look, anthropology by nature is an interdisciplinary field. You have to draw evidence, no matter what issue you're working on, from a multiple of disciplines. The problem in the field of uh, entheogens is that very often ethnobotanists don't talk to art historians, art historians don't know botany, um, and one prominent art historian that I spoke with, and we quote him in the book, uh, who wrote a commentary on the great Canterbury Psalter, uh, said to me, when I asked him about the mushrooms there, he said, Jerry, I wouldn't know a mushroom if I saw one. And it was a very frank admission, and it's part of the problem of this field of one, two sides, art historians, church theologians, not being able to recognize these mushrooms, even when they're looking right at them. I mean, we've seen some prominent art historians related to the uh, frescoes of the psilocybin mushrooms I just described to you at St. Martin de Vic, where Jesus is entering Jerusalem, describe them as branches or trees, even while looking at them. And secondly, uh, ethnobotanists very often don't you know, relate to the church theologians and historians. So you really need an interdisciplinary approach. And look, we know our theory is controversial, and that's why we, but we think it is important. And we think these findings, not only those that we've described uh, through photographs of psychedelic images in Christian art, and the many, many more that others are discovering uh, are controversial. So we think this is on par with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and also of the Gnostic Gospels. And we call for the establishment of an interdisciplinary committee to collect and review and analyze these mushrooms. And that whole process uh, should be transparent, should be conducted online. So the public, as the public has been great in citizen science, in detecting radiation, in helping astronomers discover new new uh, things in the heavens, that the, the public, and especially the informed public and many of the amateur uh, mushroom seekers can add on and help with this uh, particular commentary. There's another phenomenal image here from the great Canterbury Psalter. And this is now Jesus has been baptized by John and he's off on his healing mission. And here he heals the leper. And um, the leper is saying to Jesus, and these are from the Latin translations of the scrolls, where the words are like almost in a cartoon, are, are not to compare a cartoon with the, with the Bible, but are the words that the person is saying are written there. And the leper is saying, you know, master, cleanse me if you will. And Jesus says with the scroll that goes to the back of the leper, I want to be cleansed. But what's fascinating here is that the scroll that the leper's holding is not going up to Jesus, but it's going to a distinct psilocybin mushroom down on which it almost seems that Jesus is suspended over it. And look, in shamanism, we often find one of the primary uses of psychedelics and the shamanistic journey, which is undertaken sometimes through psychedelics, sometimes 
through other methods to travel into the supernatural world to invoke the help of the gods and goddesses, very often it's used for healing. And obviously, uh, part of Jesus's mission and, and part of his work and part of the miracles he did was a healer. And we're saying, look, this is saying that there could be, and pointing to direct evidence of psychedelics used in the healing mission of Jesus as it was used by the wise women of the Middle Ages. I mean, in, in my own personal journey, I've found that some of the different things that I had to work through in childhood, like mental things, were healed through the use of, of psychedelics and stuff like that. They definitely um, did give me lots of different healing properties. And one of the people you talk about in your book is uh, Maria Sabina. And I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Absolutely. Maria Sabina. And I had heard of her before, and I had actually listened to some of her different chants that were recorded on, on shrooms at one point. And that was a profound experience, but I found it really interesting, the whole inner dynamics of, of her in there. I just brought it up because you brought up about uh, the mushroom healers. That's how she used it um, from, what, from what you've said in your book. Absolutely. And this is a tradition among the Mazatec Indians in the state of Oaxaca, from, you know, pretty much from time immemorial. And also when the Spanish chroniclers, the priests and the, and the writers who came along with Cortez on the conquest of Mexico in 1519 to 1521, they recorded Aztec use of um, shrooms, of psychedelic mushrooms, to you be used with healing, to be used with divination, to be used with prophecy, and they um, were similarities. That's, this is what's amazing, and Gordon Wasson uh, discovered this. There are similarities between almost the, the, the rich rituals used by the Aztecs 400 years ago with the rituals used by contemporary Mazatec shamanism at the time of Maria Sabina, uh, which are still going on in Oaxaca today. And I think it's important to point out that Maria Sabina and her sister, they were very poor as children. They sometimes ate the mushrooms just for sustenance. And then in a way, by eating a few of them, they were kind of microdosing on them. They gave them, made them feel good, gave them energy. But there came, and, and Maria Sabina came from a long line of Mazatec shaman, I mean, their family, uh, grandparents and uncles. And she got to a point where her sister became very ill. And the Mazatec um, uh, brujas, the people who heal with herbs, could not heal her. The Mazatec people, uh, healers who used incantations and spells, could not heal her. So she decided to turn to the mushrooms. And she gave her sister six pairs. And her sister was having horrible abdominal pains. And she herself took 30 pairs of mushrooms. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. And as we describe in the book, she was approached by these people she called the principal ones who were not earthly beings, who initiated her into the highest order of Mazatec shamanism. And all of a sudden, a giant book appears before her and the page is open. And although she was illiterate, she didn't speak Spanish and she was illiterate. She didn't read Mazatec. 
she could read the book and the book gave her the wisdom she needed to be a healer and helped her understand how to heal her sister. And you notice in the chants of Maria Sabina, she finishes practically every line of her chant with the phrase, mushroom says, because it's not her speaking. It's the wisdom of the mushroom speaking through her. And if you want to look for uh, a way in which Christianity and uh, psychedelic shamanism can exist side by side, look no further than Maria Sabina, because her chants are replete with invocations of Jesus Christ and other saints. And after 300 years of Spanish Catholic colonialism, there was a, a complete fusion among the Mazatecs and among um, other peoples uh, to a certain extent um, that I could name in uh, Mexico uh, of fusing the Catholic imagery and ritual with uh, psychedelic shamanism. So Maria Sabina sees uh, Jesus as a healer and there are some words in Mazatec uh, for the mushrooms and the juice of the mushrooms as the blood of Christ that fell to earth. So these can and do uh, coexist. And I understand, although I have not been able to personally verify it, that there is a Catholic priest uh, currently in Huatla de Jimenez, which is the one of the centers uh, in the area of the Mazatec in the state of Oaxaca, who has petitioned the Vatican to allow him to use the uh, local psychedelic psilocybin mushrooms in the Catholic mass. Wow. Yeah. And this is not too far, far fetched because when you move over to Brazil, where ayahuasca is quite accepted in two uh, aspects of Brazilian religious life in Santo Dime and in the uh, UDV, Unial de Vegetal, uh, the Catholic Church and the, in Brazil and the Catholic bishops have endorsed and approved the ayahuasca in the Catholic Mass there. So uh, it's a very interesting phenomena that's going on, and especially to watch ayahuasca, the visionary vine, emerge from the jungles of, and the Amazon areas of Brazil and Peru and sort of start to go worldwide, at least you know, coming here into the United States and, and into Europe with people traveling there for ayahuasca ceremonies and shamans you know, coming up and providing those, those ceremonies. Uh, and, and then you get some of the problems of false ecotourism, mm -hmm. of people just trying to capitalize and make money on that. But it's, it's very interesting. And Maria Sabina is probably one of the most, if not the most famous uh, shaman uh, because of the write-ups that she received of the 20th century. And now uh, she has been, after having a very hard time in Oaxaca for uh, sharing this with white outsiders, which was kind of a taboo, and we discussed that problem in our book, uh, she's sort of been uh, resurrected as a, a religious and folk hero uh, in uh, Huautla de Jimenez in the Mazatec area, and there are many frescoes of her throughout the area. So she's a phenomenal uh, figure in, in the shamanic world. And her work was mainly with healing, mm -hmm. mainly with healing. Yeah, I found that whole that whole section there very interesting. And then kind of like the inner dynamic with her and Wasson. Um, that's one of the things I, I was familiar with Wasson and I had a different opinion of him going in than I did after finishing reading the, the book in, in many different lights. Right. Um, 
one of the things that I was I had read before was that Wasson kind of like talked down about the hippies going down there and experience experimenting with the, the stuff and like kind of made it seem like it was their fault that some of the things transpired after he released that information um, the way that he did. Do you think that was kind of him covering his own tracks in lots of ways? Uh, in some ways, I, I do believe it. And it's very insightful of you to, to focus on that. First of all, I want to say um, I have nothing. I have most of our writing about Wasson is with the greatest respect because he goes from being a, uh, a journalist and a banker and an amateur mycologist to becoming one of, if not the most prominent mycologist of his, of his age. And he did groundbreaking work in discovering that the soma of the Hindu Rig Veda was a psychoactive Amanita muscaria plant. In working with the famous classicist, Greek scholar, Karl Rook and Albert Hoffman to reveal the mystery that the potion that was taken at Eleusis uh, in the Eleusinian mysteries and the ritual of Eleusis that went on in ancient Greece from 1500 BC to the 400s when Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire and Eleusis was taken apart and suppressed, that the Kikion potion that was given to the uh, pilgrims who came to Eleusis contained a psychoactive LSD-like substance, which was a fungal growth, Claviceps purpea, that grew on the rye and barley around the plains of Eleusis and was known to the Greek family that were the sort of priests and guardians of Eleusis and that made that particular uh, potion. And as we see at Eleusis, um, and this is often with shamanism, I mean, this is for people the holiest of the holies. You don't share it, you don't talk about it in many cultures your experience, you certainly don't blab about it and share it with outsiders. Um, and it was on pain of death that you spoke about uh, what happened, what transpired at Eleusis. Wasson also went on to um, analyze and reveal to the world the incredible reindeer reindeer herder and Amanita complex that exists among the reindeer herding people of Siberia from time immemorial and still exists today among the 30 different reindeer herding tribes. And in our view is the genesis of the current contemporary uh, story of Santa, which we describe in our book as Santa the reindeer shaman. And Wasson also, when he found out that there was a living mushroom cult in Mexico. I mean, this was extremely exciting because here he was talking about something that was in the past. And if he could find evidence that vestiges of this ancient mushroom cult had survived into modern times, this would be a major discovery. And so he went to Oaxaca in 1955. And because the, um, the, the city, I should say the village official um, recommended to Maria Sabina that she invite Wasson into the ceremony. She felt she was acting on the, on the official's orders uh, to do that. And she allowed Wasson and his uh, celebrity photographer, Alan Richardson, who accompanied him on this journey in, allowed them to take photographs, even using disruptive strobe lights 
you know, to, to light up the scene in the all-night velada or mushroom ceremony in which they were participating. And she told Wasson, look, these photographs are for you. They're, you know, for your personal use, for you and your friends. They're not to be shared publicly. If you did do that, it would be una traición. It would be a, 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 a what would I call it? Traición. You would be betraying us. It would be a betrayal. That's what she said to him, what was communicated to him. And he did. He put her photograph in Life magazine, which was one of the most famous magazines of the times, along with Look magazine. And this led to many, many people. I mean, from, from the Beatles to um, the Rolling Stones to other famous people, and, and many, many people besieging and sort of profaning um, the practice in, in Huatla de Jimenez, which led to a lot, of, a lot of difficulty, ostracism by her own community, by the other shamans, for Maria Sabina. Now, Wasson's argument is that, look, if I wouldn't have done this, it would not survive. Julie and I think that is utter nonsense. You are telling us that a ritual that survived 300 years of Spanish suppression <laughs> was not going to survive if you didn't put it in the newspaper. And there is a golden rule in anthropology, uh, among the ethical code of anthropology. You know, do no harm to the people that take you in and that you're studying. And even if Wasson wasn't an anthropologist, he should have listened to the words of Maria Sabina. So this was one of several things that Julie and I, uh, who started out with nothing but the greatest admiration for Gordon Wasson and should not take away from the great work that he did in the field, uh, feel that he made some tragic uh, errors. And also in the book, we discover why Gordon Wasson, who was an indefatigable, persistent researcher who traced, attract the magic mushroom, you know, to the four corners of the earth, why he didn't pursue his theory into the hallowed halls of Christianity. And that's revealed in a chapter in our book. And I invite your readers who can learn about our book on our website, psychedeliggospels.com, psychedeliggospels.com, or can buy the book on Amazon or through your favorite booksellers, indie booksellers. Uh, you can find out about that in, uh, in our, by reading our book. Yeah, I don't well, want to give everything away. Yeah, without, without revealing what, what your conclusion is with all of that, were you surprised to come to that conclusion? Because I was somewhat surprised that that's where it led, but also at the same time, having researched different things, I was kind of like, oh, that kind of makes sense in some ways. Yeah. No, I, we were surprised both to find <clears throat> Wasson's responsibility and his effort to uh, try to avoid that responsibility by, by providing a rationale that if he wouldn't have publicized um, Maria Sabina, that this practice would have, would have disappeared. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we, don't, we didn't think that washes. So we found that and his um, reluctance, even when he saw direct evidence of psychedelics in Christian art, which he saw at that image of the giant mushroom in plain Keralt, which he visited personally in 1952. Many, he and his wife, Valentina, visited there. Many, many years, a half a century or so before Julie and I visited there, why he didn't use that evidence 
to look into Christianity. That was one of the great enigmas that we started the book out with. And we feel that out of respect for him and the work that he's done, we're not here just to blindly praise him, but to follow his theories wherever they lead. And to us, they led us into uh, the discovery of, of psychedelics and Christian art. Yeah, I honestly, I'm glad, I'm glad that I brought that whole thing with Wasson up because in listening to you talk about it, when I read something, sometimes, you know, when anybody reads something, they kind of put their own mind frame on the words. And sure. I've kind of, um, one of my mental conditions is a borderline personality disorder, and that can be extreme polarization of situations. So after listening to you kind of talk about it, what I take away from it more is it doesn't detract from his work so much. He kind of fell because of his own humanity and made a human error in pursuing those things and kind of sacrificing those things. Is that kind of more like your, your take on it? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a sort of a, um, a, a strange backhanded critique of Maria Sabina uh, wanting to become the most famous shaman of her time. I think when he saw what he found there and saw the opportunity, he kind of threw her under the bus in order to become the most famous ethnobotanist of his time by revealing this. And so that's kind of our, our take on that, that his own um, ego kind of got in the way of his ethics when it came to Maria Sabina. And, uh, you know, we quote him uh, where he, he sort of pro provides this apology and this justification at the beginning of a book of the, an autobiography of Maria Sabina, which she was, was taken down by another Mazatec speaker who was a lawyer and then transcribed into a book of the, about the life of Maria Sabina. So all of this comes from original sources. Yeah, hearing, so, hearing how he kind of meant, brought all that stuff up, I was kind of like, ah, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. It was just really interesting to me. Um, there was a couple other questions I had. I know that we're running short on time, and I don't want to run over too much. Um, hold on here. Um so you use the term entheogen and, and psychedelic. Which one do you personally prefer? And, and what is the, the difference for people that may, may not know? Yeah. Uh, so I prefer entheogens, which was created by Carl Rook, working with Gordon Wasson and a team who are sort of very dissatisfied with the color and phrasing that psychedelics had taken on uh, due to the adventures of Timothy Leary and where it sort of got colored as a sort of a hippie phenomena and uh, advocating, you know, rampant use of, of psychedelics, which in effect led in part to the banning of all psychedelics under the Controlled Substances Act of the federal government or most psychedelics that they knew about uh, in 1970. And so they wanted Wasson and Rook to separate the image and branding and discussion of psychedelics <laughs> uh, from what they considered them to be entheogens. And this comes from the Greek word, Greek root words, en, within, theo, god, dios, gen, entheogen, generate the divine within. Mm. And that's the word that they've used 
That's the word that we prefer. But since most people don't understand it and wouldn't know about it if we said the entheogen gospel on the cover of the book, uh, we, we use psychedelics as uh, MAPS does, psychedelic science, because this is the term that's used. Uh, there are other words, uh, hallucinogens, psychomimetic, mind manifesting. We sort of use them interchangeably in the book, although we, we draw certain uh, distinctions. But basically, we use them interchangeably. But I think it's very good for people to use the term entheogen, uh, because it kind of takes some of the stigma away that the term psychedelics has been associated with. Uh, however, I'd like to point out that in this current psychedelic renaissance, that the media now looking at the breakthroughs that are happening with psychedelics in everything from uh, depression and cancer treatment to cluster headaches, and I could go on and on, uh, that psychedelics are, are starting to be seen as medicine, as ayahuasca is in a more favorable light. Or I could quote a Wichol shaman who said, uh, aspirin, that's a drug, peyote, that's sacred. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, in my personal experience, they can, plant medicines can be used both ways, unfortunately, which is one of the difficult things. Um, but I definitely do think that there is more of a medicinal quality to some of them, and I've had a lot of benefits from them. I've also abused them, though, personally, and it's right. not the substance. That's more of me, the individual, sure. um, misusing it. Well, look, anything, cars can be abused. A nuclear power can be abused. Um, drugs can be abused or be beneficial. Uh, so obviously we have to take responsibility for our actions. And that's when, when Julie and I in the book, in the conclusion of the book, we say, look, it's, it's great what MAPS is doing for the legalization. And, and as we saw with marijuana, that legalization follows medicalization uh, for the eventual eventual and what I think is inevitable legalization of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. This is gonna happen in controlled clinical settings. We're not gonna see LSD in dispensaries in Colorado, <laughs> the way you see cannabis uh, today. Um, but what about the rest of us, myself included, uh, the 26 million Americans who have experimented uh, with LSD at some time in their life and found it either challenging or very helpful, and sometimes the challenges lead to helpful growth experiences, and certainly religious and spiritual experiences. And I'd say very honestly in our book that Julie and I had our first authentic you know, religious experiences of the divine on psychedelics. What about us? Uh, don't we as a First Amendment right under the U.S. Constitution, which says that Congress should make no you know, prohibition on the use or the free expression of religion have a right. So we think these substances should be legalized, but also used responsibly, and mm -hmm. that there should be sacred centers or retreat centers or religious retreats where people can go and have the availability of, of trained guides and people who are emotionally mature, you know, who are not too young or their egos not formed strongly or who are, are emotionally unstable and can be put at the risk for psychedelics, that they would be sort of screened out for the, for the present time, but where people could go and have the ability of experienced guides, as Fadiman talks about in his book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, to explore these for personal growth, 
for creativity and for religious purposes. And I throw in there creativity because uh, the last chapter of our book starts out with a quote, Steve Jobs loved LSD. And the you know, famous founder of Apple said that LSD was one of the two or three most significant experiences in his life, and it helped him think different, the motto of Apple. And he's not alone. I mean, uh, Crick, Francis Crick, uh, the co-discoverer of the DNA uh, code, he visualized the DNA helix while under LSD. And uh, Jim Fadiman, who wrote this book that I just mentioned, conducted problem-solving experiences with LSD back in the 1960s, where he took a group of mature scientists, architects, mathematicians, engineers, chemists, who were mature in their field and working on a problem that they'd been wrestling with unsuccessfully for three to six months. He gave them a medium dose of psychedelics and 85% of them had a major breakthrough in the problem that they were trying to solve out of coming out of that session. And by that, I mean that the breakthrough was independently verified as a correct solution by other scientists. And also, some of, in, in some cases, led to a commercial application. So, um, you know, if we're gonna be a society that definitely thrives on and prizes innovation, but banned psychedelics as a uh, incentive or catalyst for creative problem solving, then we're kind of cutting off our nose to spite our face. And I think this is why microdosing has become using very small amounts, not heroic doses of LSD or psilocybin, but small amounts, a tenth of that uh, dose, maybe 10 micrograms, 10 millionths of a gram of LSD for creative problem solving, um, better insight at work, why this has become quite a fad in Silicon Valley and other uh, creative centers. Mm. No, I, I'm, I definitely think that would be good. And I'm one of the few people I think that um, chooses to abstain from substances, but it's still for the legalization of stuff like that because they have had, had pro, um, profound benefits for me. Um, there's a lot of people in the 12-step program that I attend that wouldn't understand how I cannot want to do them anymore myself, but still be right. like, it, it's not my position to tell people what to do or not to do. It, it's just, um, for me personally, they can be detrimental and I understand they can be detrimental for other people at the same time though, they have helped me and there's other people out there. There's a lot of people that don't have the same problems I do. So it's not fair for, I don't think it's fair for anybody to dictate what substances somebody should put in their body. And there's a lot of evidence that supports the fact that countries that have legal legalization policies where they're all legal have less issues with substances. Um, in this country here, it's more of a money-making scheme for privatized prisons more than anything and a, a way to keep people down. You know, I, absolutely. And we could talk about each one of those, but I think Portugal, which legalized all drugs and put their money into treatment and helping people who had drug problems or were addicted. None of the catastrophes that the war on drugs people predicted have come about. There's less crime, there's better uh, mental health, there's less abuse, and Portugal is showing the way. There's no doubt uh, about it that in um, that the dr current drug laws unfairly penalize minorities. 
And there's also the issue that here we are in the good old US of A, the home of the free, the land of the brave. We have more people in prison and in the parole and probation system, about 7 million people, than any other country in the world, including communist China, which has way more people than we do, which has over, you know, somewhere near a billion and a half people compared to ours, plus 300 million plus. Uh, it is totally known to, in certain studies, such as a study called Unlocking America, that look, in the criminal justice system, they know who the really dangerous people are who need to be locked up, and they know who the people are who, who've committed victimless crimes, uh, selling or taking drugs, uh, not selling them to children, obviously, or trying to get people addicted. Um, and, and the conclusion of this is we could unlock and release safely, and I underscored the word safely in this study, half of that prison population over a, a, over a 10 year period of time without, without harming public safety. Mm -hmm. And this should be done. And what these current, you know, uh, the current administration that's calling for the most harshest enforcement of the drug laws, it's going to provide more people into the private prison system. And so this is a very uh, dark and, and unfair aspect of American society. And many, um, many countries, states around the world, in, in addition to uh, commissioners, police commissioners who've run the prison systems in different states from New York to, to Washington to California have concluded that we need to do this. We need to do, we, we just can't keep building and overcrowding uh, the prison system. It devastates people's lives. It turns them into felons who can't vote. It ruins their families. And there's gotta be a better and more humane way uh, to go about this. And I'm, I'm kind of like you, Ross. I mean, I had seminal psychedelic experiences back in the, in the 70s and the 80s, and I have not felt a need to revisit those. Um, you know, some people may feel they need to continue to explore things, and I don't condemn that. But I wonder about people who, you know, done 30, 25, 30, 35 ayahuasca trips, and, you know, maybe they're slow learners. I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not to say... As Jim Fadiman says about ayahuasca, throw up, shut up, and listen to the plant. It's been here <laughs> a lot longer than you have, and it's a lot wiser than you are. Since you brought up ayahuasca, I want to bring up uh, something real quick, and then uh, I'll let you close, that, close out how, how you want to if you have a certain way. Don't you find it fascinating how shamans were able to, to determine the different combinations of plants to combine to make this this beverage without any modern um, pharmacological knowledge or pharmacological knowledge that always sure. blew my mind like yeah i i think that that's a great question uh, obviously you've thought about this area um you know quite deeply and there's a simple answer to this and then there's an answer that's a little more complex and the simple answer is look these were early chemists and let's not be so arrogant as to think that all of the discoveries in, in chemistry or any other field are only made by us. And we could certainly acknowledge the proposition that there were people who had chemical insights, who were early shamans, who made these discoveries. Now, when you think about it, these, some of these discoveries are quite phenomenal. Peyote, for anybody who's taken, ingested the peyote plant, is extremely bitter 
extremely. And when you watch videos of the Wichol uh, people chewing these, you can see the faces that they're making. So why are people doing that? To extract bufotenin from um, the bufomoreus toad, as some of the indigenous people do in uh, Veracruz. And if you, if you take too much of that, you die. But if you take some, uh, the right amount, the right dose, and dose is important with any uh, drug, any particular drug, whether it be aspirin or whether it be something as powerful as LSD. How did they experiment and know what was the right dose for a shamanic experience as opposed to a death experience? And similarly, how did they know to combine, you know, uh, the DMT containing plant with the MAO inhibitor so that people would get that? They had to experiment with that. That's a given. And there's given, and look, it doesn't take a lot because all you need is one inventor to then diffuse and distribute a technology or a chemical insight through a society. And once it's proven out, then other people can learn it. Now there's a, a, a more complex explanation. Why? Why would they have made these investigations in the first place? Well, let's think about it. Who are the first peoples of the Americas? They came across the Bering landmass when the sea levels were low and the whole Bering Straits from the Kamachkal Peninsula in uh, Russia, Siberia was frozen over and people could walk into the new world, into the Americas. And they did so and they went from the, from the Americas becoming American uh, Eskimos and the different tribes that lived there to American Plains Indians, to going into inhabiting the Amazon, all the way to the tip of Tierra del Fuego. If they were the people who used Amanita muscaria as part of their shamanistic practices in the old world, and when they came into the new world and they passed out of the Rockies, because Amanita in the new world only grows at six to 8,000 feet, and they lost access to Amanita muscaria, which had been the portal and the mainstay of the shamanic practices, this was so important, this plant portal, that they looked for other plants that would open the pathway to the divine, to the world of the elders, to the shamanic underworld and overworld. And in doing so, they experimented. And that's what their motivation was to eventually do this early chemistry and find out if there were other plants that could create this. Wow. So, in, 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 and we talk about this in the book. Uh, it is a very important landmark in the whole study of psychedelics and culture. But to put it anthropologically, there is a direct linear experience back into early times going from Siberian shamanism all the way uh, into the Americas. Mm. I, that's, I a, that's a long answer. No, that, that's awesome. I, I, I find that to be so profound. I have one more quick question. Um, do you find that psychedelic use or drug use is pretty much one of, in most earlier forms of all religions cross-culturally, globally? Many, many, not all of them, obviously. One Spanish anthropologist who we cite in the book, you know, found that some 80, 90 percent of cultures that she examined had some alternative state of consciousness as part of their religious practices. So that could and be meditation and stuff like it that. It could as be well. meditation. It could be sensory deprivation. It could be fasting. It could be self-flagellation. 
It could be a combination thereof, whistling and drumming. Uh, and some of those are conducted with or without psychedelics. But psychedelics are very widespread from among the Shipobo, uh, Shipibo people and the Kinibo of the uh, ayahuasca using people of the Amazon to the Huichol and Cora people who use peyote and it's used among uh, Plains Indians in the United States to the Fang of, of uh, Gabon in Africa who use Ibogaine uh, to the Picuri among the Australian uh, Aborigines. And I could go on and on. Uh, it is very wide, widely used. <laughs> I'm sorry, this brought up like one more question. This will sure. be this will definitely be the last question. I, I, <laughs> yeah. just, I have so many things to ask. It's just, do you find that like Mexico, Central America, and South America to be one of the most um, psychedelically rich areas in the world? Absolutely. And and one of what what led to this whole discussion was why in the New World are there like 80 to 90 indigenous groups of people that use psychedelics? when there's only a handful in the old world. I mean, the old world was inhabited, Africa, Europe, Eurasia, <laughs> Australia, uh, China, India, was, is, has a larger land mass. It has the same diversity of, of climate. It was inhabited much longer. So what happened there? Well, what you find is that the coming, with the coming of monotheism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, that the use of psychedelics were suppressed. And what you find is the emergence of a religious caste or class of people who now wanted, with political power, to control the word of God. And as part of political religious power, which were merged in early societies, to use that for control of the masses. So if, if I have a direct experience of the divine, why do I need a priest? or a rabbi or an imam mediating my interaction with the divine. So this is a very interesting phenomena that we describe in the book and we conclude our book and maybe this is a good place to wrap up by pointing out that, that psychedelics have always caused political and religious uh, problems for societies to the extent that they were, um, you know, banned as taboo drugs, because we think the, the Garden of Eden is a story about banning Amanita muscaria in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden. They were condemned as the tools of Satan during the Inquisition in the condemnation of the witch's ointment. And this is the time when the wise women of, of Europe become the witches of the Inquisition, and Santa becomes Satan, and the horn god of shamanism becomes the devil of Christianity. And they were banned as dangerous drugs during the 1960s. And let's, let's think about this for a minute, because how often is it that a culture completely bans inquiry into a particular area of investigation? It's very rare. So now we conclude our book by saying, look, with this second coming this second chance of psychedelics, these issues will all reemerge, and we hope that people will look at them with an open heart and an open mind. And for those of you listening who are fascinated or want more information, please go to our website, psychedeliggospels.com, or pick up our book, The Psychedelic Gospels, which you can get in a Kindle version or a paperback version on Amazon 
at your bookstore or at a bookseller of your choice. And, and I really appreciate your questions. You've obviously thought a lot about these things. I, I have deep gratitude to you for taking the time to read our book and for having me on uh, your, your show, your program. Thanks very much, Jerry. Don't believe, don't follow, do not consume, do not watch. Largely what I'm talking about here is reclaiming experience. This is what's been taken from us. It's a self-advancing, self-expanding, self-defining process, and it takes no prisoners. The real world isn't a spiritual world, it isn't a material world, it isn't an empty world, it isn't a solid world, it's simply...